0: Coming at you from the Wee Desert studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed.
1: Welcome to episode 50 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Stat, and I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook and Dolores Lozano. Jeremy Paxson is actually in Amsterdam right now and will be joining us again next week on the podcast. And I actually, just got a text from him. Uh, he just met Brooke Evers. And- Brooke Evers? Brooke Evers. Yeah, if you'll recall, we had Brooke Evers on one of our early episodes. Uh, I believe episode 27-ish, somewhere around there, back in January. Uh, kind of cool that they uh, met up in Amsterdam, I guess. But uh, other than This is again the 50th episode of the podcast, and this week has just been absolutely insane with NBA free agency. And
2: if you can shoot a basketball, Get paid $100 million. That's what it seems like to me. <laughs> it is my favorite time of the year. This is like Christmas for all NBA fans, I think. This is, um, you know, the, the games, uh, you know, the, particularly playoff series are kind of predetermined. The best team usually wins it. You kind of have an idea going in of what's going to happen, the NBA finals notwithstanding. But this is the time when the real surprises happen and people like Mike Conley get paid the largest contract in NBA history $153 million. And he's certainly deserving, but I think he is emblematic of what exactly is going on with the salary cap rising. A lot of people spend speculated that guys were going to get paid and we are seeing it happen uh maybe even bigger than some of us would have thought now we know the salary cap has gone up i mean just two
1: years ago the nba salary cap is around 55 56 million dollars this year it's going to be around 94 million and uh, the rumor next year is that it's going to skyrocket even more going up to around 115 120 million dollars so uh, it, it just surprises me that we have all of these guys getting insane contracts and then we have guys like LeBron James that are still getting max salaries just the same way as Mike Conley are. And to me, those two aren't equal. On uh, Andre Drummond, max contract. To me, I think, I, I really wish the NBA would almost go to like a free market system and that we'd see guys like, you know, Westbrook, guys like Durant, guys like LeBron James, uh, you know, potentially get... $80-plus 1000000 contracts a year. I think they're deserving of that sort of contract. But there was actually a, a graphic that was put out by SportsCenter uh, this past week, and it said that Damari DeRozan, Bradley Beal, Andre Drummond, and Mike Connolly's guaranteed money, which is $547.4 million, wow. is equal to the guaranteed money of 11 NFL starting quarterbacks. And some of those quarterbacks are Andrew Luck, Ben Roethlisberger, Eli Manning, Tony Romo, Cam Newton, Tom Brady, I mean, those are top-of-the-line starting quarterbacks, and I don't know if Bradley Beal equals a top-of-the-line starting quarterback.
2: Well, I think it speaks to the strength of the union. So the NFLPA has not done a particularly good job negotiating on behalf of its players, I think. So there's far less guaranteed money. That's why I always say when you look at the number— when a big quarterback or a big free agent signs, you know, they're guaranteed maybe a tenth of that number or something to that effect, whereas NBA contracts are almost fully guaranteed. So that's just a, a union strength issue. It's an interesting point, I guess, to, to count up the numbers and look at that in that context, but it's not really um, indicative of what's actually happening. But uh, certainly, uh, if you talk about the union and we talk about, you know, player salaries and so forth, the union could have avoided this enormous rise in the salary cap and ultimately elected not to. I guess they thought it would be better for their members. The union's also, uh, I don't think they're going to push against a max contract. Because when you think about max contracts, right, you have guys like LeBron cap out, you know, uh, Steph Curry in a couple of years or in a year. Um, those guys are going to be capped out. That's a lot more money for the guys down lower on the unions. So I don't think anyone's unhappy with the way this max contract situation works, except potentially the guys that could be earning more, like your LeBrons, like your Steph Currys, like your Kevin Durants. So uh, it's an interesting system. Um, I, I don't mind the max contract system personally. Uh, we'd probably have to pay James Harden a lot more here in Houston if we didn't have that sort of system in place.
1: Interestingly enough, James Harden is not the highest paid rocket, which to me just blows my mind, and that highest paid rocket would actually be Ryan Anderson, who just signed a free agent contract. Uh, with the Rockets. And uh, Dolores, Kevin, I'm kind of curious on what you think of this signing. Again, uh, Anderson comes to the Rockets from uh, playing with the Pelicans. He's spent time with the Pelicans organization for the past four years. Uh, He's a guy that last year averaged 17 points a game. He shoots around 36, 38 percent from the three-point line, which I think works out pretty well for what the Rockets and Mike D'Antoni want to do. But I'm kind of curious y'all's reaction from a local perspective. Are you on board with Ryan Anderson signing?
2: Well, it's been well-known and well-documented that Daryl Morey has uh, an affinity for the way Ryan Anderson plays the game and the way he works into the game they'd like to play here in Houston so particularly with Mike D'Antoni signing a board sort of freewheeling style it's going to spread the court um, guys you know uh, shooting from the three-point line are going to give Harden more room to drive things like that so Ryan Anderson not a surprise um, you know he got paid uh, you're talking $80 million. Yeah, for four years $80 million, so $20 million a year not a max guy um, which is good I think it's, it's, there's some value there everybody's getting paid of course um, I like his game uh, I think that he is is... Uh I'll be interested to see what he can do in this system because I think that so far he hasn't been an impressive player. He's one of the best three point shooting bigs in the league, certainly. You got guys like Channing Fry as well who can do that. But uh, I, I was sort of expected him to come here. Um, I was gratified that they got what they wanted there. The one that's a little more mysterious to me is Eric Gordon, who signed for four years, $53 million. Um, guy who spent eight years in the league uh, has had one season where he's played more than 65 games, and that was his rookie season. This is a guy that's plagued by injuries. Ryan Anderson also had his fair share of injuries. So uh, there are some concerns, some question marks for me about the guys they signed. Everybody universally on social media, uh, reporting in articles, things like that, seems to say like it's been a really solid free agency for the Rockets so far. I think the jury's still out for me. I don't feel like the team is um, is that much more improved, particularly with Dwight Howard leaving.
3: Yeah, I think Anderson is going to be a strong power forward for the Rockets, but it all goes down to the team chemistry and if everyone's going to be able to get along. So that's going to be really interesting to see if Gordon and Anderson can come join the Rockets and be... Uh, a great part of the team and kind of help them.
1: Yeah, when you look actually at the the advanced metrics, the per-36-minute stats, Ryan Anderson actually had a better year last year than he's had in any of his previous uh, NBA seasons. He, You know, per-36 minutes, scored 20.2 points, just about half a block, uh, just about a steal per game, one assist, and then seven total rebounds. So I think he provides some value there. And I, I do think... Th- I'm still not sure whether or not he's going to provide the answer on defense that the Rockets need, but I don't know that D'Antoni actually cares about that. But when you look at uh, when you look at Eric Gordon's per 36-minute stats. Uh, he had 16.7 points per 36 minutes last year, which is actually down. It's one of the lower numbers in his entire career. Now, granted, he struggled with injury problems. It still kind of makes me a little bit concerned on whether or not he can sustain uh, and, and be healthy for an entire season. And I, I think if he can, the Rockets are going to enjoy that. But uh, as we were talking a little bit off air, we see him as kind of a, a sixth man. Is, is that correct?
2: That's what I think, certainly. I think Patrick Beverly plays defense on the best point guards in the league. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if Eric Gordon can handle those responsibilities certainly James Harden can't. So I'm wondering where he fits in. I like him coming off the bench, particularly with his uh, injury history, playing a few less minutes a game, um, giving them an offensive spark off the bench. But I have no idea how they're going to use him, of course. And it does create some interesting questions in terms of what the starting five is going to look like. Again, I don't feel like with the loss of Dwight Howard, and I've been as critical of Dwight Howard as anybody in this city, I think, but he does have value. He is a valuable piece in some sense, although he's not as valuable as he once was. So when you consider the net gain or loss, I'm really underwhelmed by what we've done so far free agency. I'm hoping that there's more to come.
1: Well, the one guy that everyone probably wants right now is Kevin Durant, and Kevin Durant is uh, not coming to the Houston Rockets. He was not granted a meeting with Daryl Morey and, uh, I guess, James Harden and uh, the rest of the team. Uh, but uh, there are strong rumors right now that if he doesn't end up in Oklahoma City, that he could end up in Boston. Is this actually going to happen?
2: Well, I think it's interesting because he was uh, reported by Worshnerowski as uh, recruiting Horford to Oklahoma City, uh, and Horford would not come without a guarantee that uh, Durant and Westbrook were going to be there for the long term, which they weren't willing to give. So that was interesting, I thought, that Durant was out there on the recruiting trail for the Thunder. But now you look, Horford is signed with the Celtics. That's a big move. The Celtics have been making some big moves, and they have some assets as well well, I think they're an appealing destination. You have them, first of all, they're in the East, so you're competing with uh, LeBron and the Cavs versus you know all the stack teams in the West, and then uh, they look like they're being managed well. Brad Stevens is a very uh, talented young coach. A lot of people are very high on him. It seems like an attractive destination, so um, of course, famously, Tom Brady uh, was along to pitch Kevin Durant for the Celtics, which I thought was very, very interesting, um, so I don't know what to make of that story. That's a little cross-sport promotion there that I think is fascinating, but uh, it seems to me like... Like if he's not going to stay with Oklahoma City, and there's a lot of good reasons to stay with Oklahoma City, then Boston would be the next most attractive destination. So, gun to my head, if I'm forced to bet, you know, I'm the worst predictor in the world, I would say that he still probably stays with Oklahoma City, uh, signs a one and one, catches down on the uh, cap rising again next year. But again, he's had some injury concerns. His foot's an issue. You know, he's a seven foot guy who lies, says he's 6'10, uh, who has some injury concerns with his feet. He may be looking to sign a long term deal, and it feels like. The Celtics would be a more appealing long-term destination than Oklahoma City, particularly with Westbrook uh, being able to leave next year.
1: Interestingly enough, another team that was in the mix for Kevin Durant was actually the Los Angeles Clippers. And uh, according to Aaron Boruski, who's an NBA writer, he tweeted out on Saturday that the Clippers' meeting with Durant was "quote intense" and "quote at one point Steve Ballmer was crying, <laughs> but everyone grew closer and a big lesson was learned." What? So I think I think there's it's I think there's the a world. little bit of like comedy mix in there, but uh, <laughs> it's interesting that. Uh, The Clippers essentially were trying to have a quote-unquote big four. Uh, I'm not sure that that is a big four in L.A., but it's more like a big three, three and a half. Uh, But he was not going to be able to sign for a max contract, and I think that's a a problem with a lot of these Do you know why? They didn't have cap space.
2: Austin Rivers. Austin Rivers is a talented guy. When I mentioned Big Four, he's in there. <laughs> <laughs> if Austin Rivers is in your Big Four, you are doomed. That is nepotism plain and simple. Although it isn't really, he had he had competing offers, so um, he, you know, he could have gone elsewhere. But I think that uh, when you have a meeting that was quote unquote impressive or blew Kevin Durant away, I've heard various uh, different takes on that Los Angeles meeting, uh, and then you sign Austin Rivers to the deal and basically preclude Kevin Durant coming. That's just curious to me, and uh, I don't know. I, I'm glad he's not going to the Clippers. I dislike the Clippers. I dislike Austin Rivers, and uh, I dislike seeing him get paid, too. Yeah, three years, $35 million, according to ESPN for the Austin
1: Rivers duo. That's just insane to me that a guy like Austin Rivers is making $35 million. But, kids, listen, don't play football. Play basketball. If you can shoot and you're tall, you will get paid a lot of money. So that's a note to be uh, written down for those young listeners of the Weekly Brew podcast. But one of the things that we also did this week is we went to Reddit and we kind of solicited, uh it, I guess, feedback and advice on NBA free agency, specifically the Rock, and just kind of wanting to know what the the NBA and the Houston community thought of the NBA free agent signings. And Kevin, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you so you can read some of these comments.
2: Yeah, Reddit is a terrific resource whether you're looking for basketball opinions or upskirt photos you can really find it all there so we appreciate all the redditors jumping in on our thread and giving us an opinion uh none time account says uh in terms of the ryan anderson signing and this is just before the eric gordon signing he says it depends on what else we do how he feels about this offensively this moves us into the top five in the league opens up the paint for james harden and gives us the stretch for more a has been pursuing forever defensively it worries me i think that's a fair take if we use the rest of free agency to shore up the paint uh, I think it will prove to be a great move for us. Of course, then we ended up getting Eric Gordon did not shore up the paint whatsoever. So Clint Capella is a question mark. He's going to be your starting center most likely, particularly with all the other centers going for huge money elsewhere. Um, uh, King 5000 says, he's a nice piece to have on a championship-level team. We are not a championship-level team. But he fits in the overall puzzle offensively. Defensively, I just don't see how we don't give up 100-plus per game. So we're seeing a lot of similar comments here. Uh, JD kov I guess. He's got a little clutch to the bear next to his name. Good shooter and rebounder. I'm assuming he'll come off the bench, uh, which would be nice to have a guy who can drain consecutive shots on the second unit. I'm not sure he is coming off the bench. What do you guys think? You think he's going to be in the starting rotation? Anderson, I think so. Yeah, because your your other options here, we let Terrence Jones go. Great move, by the way. Great move. And we have Demo, who is injury-plagued, injury-riddled, has a decent post game, but really doesn't fit in with what I think D'Antoni's going to want to do. So I I would actually assume that he doesn't come off the bench. I would put him in that starting lineup.
1: I think Demo moves to the bench. Uh, He's a guy that can provide a little spark off the bench. But I think Anderson has a much, much better offensive game. He's much more diverse. He can run the floor. I think DeMo gives you the opportunity to play a little more defense. So I think he's going to provide, you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes a game. And I think uh, DeMo is also another guy who has injury problems. And so it, it seems like almost every guy for the Rockets, with the exception of James Harden, is injury prone. So that's going to be, I'm kind of curious as we uh, get into the NBA season.
2: Rising Lotus says, boy, oh boy, that defense. And that uh, I think that sums up what a lot of us are worried about with this team.
1: So thanks to all of those on Reddit for giving us feedback. We definitely appreciate that. And uh, kind of the last thing that we want to touch on for NBA. Free agency is the best and worst signings. And Dolores, I'm going to start off with you. Who was your best signing and your worst signing?
3: My best signing would be Al Horford that signed for 113 million because he's going to the East Coast. He's playing for the Boston Celtics, and I'm honestly a Boston Celtics fan. Other than the Rockets, I love I love the Celtics. That's so weird. Love the Celtics. Um, So I'm happy to see him go from uh, the Hawks to Boston.
1: What about your worst signing?
3: Chandler Parsons. I don't think he's worth that much money. Uh, it was at $94 million? $94 million.
1: Yeah, and one of the interesting things about Chandler Parsons is the only reason why he got a contract like that two, three years ago was because Mark Cuban essentially said, screw you, Rockets. I'm going to make sure that you can't resign him, or if you do resign him, that you're going to be uh, essentially cash-strapped, you're not going to be able to make any moves in free agency uh, because you have his contract on the book. So he gave him uh, essentially a max offer sheet, and now Chandler Parsons gets another unbelievable contract from Memphis, and good for him. You know, he was a second-round pick uh, coming out of college, and uh, good on Daryl Moy for identifying that type of talent. I, I think uh, Chandler Parsons thinks he's one of the—that uh, he can be a piece for that big three— or a big four for a team, but I I don't know that he's talented enough to do that, but uh, he's a max player.
2: He's a guy that's injury prone as well. That's why we are so glad to have seen him gone. I remember when he was signed, there was some discussion about, oh no, like we're losing this guy into Dallas of all places. I myself, in one of the few predictions that I made correctly said, they're overpaying the crap out of this guy. There's no way he's worth that. And sure enough, he wasn't. And there are still teams willing to pay him that amount again. So, uh, you know, good luck to him and all his future endeavors. Uh, they're also paying Mike Connolly more than any NBA player has ever been paid over the course of a five-year contract. So big things happening in Memphis. Um, they would not make my best or worst though. I uh, to me, it's all about the Magic. Have you guys been following the Magic and all the signings that have been happening here? First of all, the trade, obviously, that sent uh, Oladipo to Oklahoma City and sent Serge Ibaka to the Magic, which is fascinating to me. I think he'll be an interesting piece there and have, be better utilized. But they also signed Bismack Biombo four years, $70 million. Um, paid that guy a lot for what was essentially two series of good work. Um, then you look at DJ Augustine. Jeff Green even got $15 million for a year. That guy's never been able to play up to what people hoped he would. I'm not sure he's worth $15 million, but it's fascinating what they're doing there. And Evan Fournier stayed. So that's a, that's a fascinating unit they've assembled there. But the worst, to me, has got to be Joakim Noah. Four years for $72 million. Who else but the Knicks? That is a very Knicks move.
1: One of the things that I find interesting about the Joakim Noah and uh, the Derrick Rose to the Knicks is a few years ago, Knicks fans were essentially asked, would you take those two guys and give them up for uh, Carmelo Anthony? And the answer was no, they're injury prone. But now they seem to be excited about these signings. I just don't get the mindset behind that. But for me, I think the clear... Worst signing has to be Timothy Mozgov going to the Los Angeles Lakers for four years, sixty-four million dollars. In fact, I'm just looking up Mozgov signing right now in Google News, and I see headlines like "rock bottom" uh, for the Lakers, <laughs> and uh, the Lakers are now a small market team uh, because that's a that's a move that you know small markets would make. They would overpay for a guy, uh, but you look at Mozgov; it's not like he really uh, did much at all with with the Cavs. I mean, he essentially got garbage time minutes. And uh, he's getting paid $64 million.
2: That might be a little unfair. Mozgov was not used as much this year because of the situation, in the playoffs at least, because of the situational aspects. If you remember last year, uh, Game 4 of the NBA Finals, he led the Cavs in scoring. Um, I think he may have led the game, so I need to double-check that. But he had an incredible Game 4 uh, last year in the, in the NBA Finals, and he's a guy who's got some game who is just sort of a throwback. He's a relic. He doesn't fit in with these uh, uh, death lineups, you know, small ball that people are playing. But there's still a role for him in the NBA. NBA, it's just interesting to see how far the Lakers have fallen. they got Luau Dang, which is another good signing as well, but uh, they still won't be uh, you know, a top-half team in the West I don't think, not based on anything that I've seen unless their young talent takes a bunch of huge leaps forward. So it just goes to show, small market, big market doesn't matter in today's world. In today's information economy, you can be a big star anywhere. Look at Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City.
1: Yeah, one of the things if you look at Mozgov's advanced metrics, if minutes played per game uh, the last few years, uh, again, this year he didn't play much, it was about 17.4 minutes a game, but he's been typically hovering around that. 21 to 25 minutes Uh, but if you look at the per 36 it's actually not terrible he's averaging 13 points a game uh just under 10 10 rebounds per game so he's essentially giving you double double Uh, is that worth 64 million dollars i'm not sure i still think the lakers overpaid
2: you got to you got to overpay to get anybody they weren't going to get anybody they needed some kind of a name some kind of a splash a way to improve that team and he does make that team better so
1: interesting talk on NBA free agency. We see some great signings. Uh, I guess welcome to the Rockets for Eric Gordon and Ryan Anderson. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing what you can do uh, for Clutch City. But uh, kind of moving on uh, here in just a few minutes, we're actually going to dive into the the latest O.J. documentary. Uh, we've got Adrian Holden actually joining us to discuss this, and I think it's a very fascinating conversation. Just talking about the cultural implications of what happened with O.J. Simpson and the trial uh, nearly 25 years ago, or 20 years ago, and and it's just kind of remarkable how it's still impacting our society today. Today, but uh, in, in terms of following us this week, we had a lot of of positive feedback on social media. I think we had more than 100-plus people like our Facebook page, so we'd encourage you to actually do the same. Just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find all of our content there. You can also check us out at weeklybrewcast.com. We actually have some iTunes reviews this week. Kevin does have Internet access, so he's he's actually going to be able to, uh, I guess, read those, and we'll get into those at the end of the show. But as always, we've got a great interview on tap for you uh, on OJ Simpson, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed.
0: You're listening to the Weekly Brew.
1: Now, On the Weekly Brew podcast, there's been a few occasions in which we've, uh, I guess, covered some movies. I think the last one that we actually covered was the Star Wars film. And uh, while that was not ever going to win an Oscar, there is actually one film, I guess, documentary that uh, all of us have watched recently. And that's the O.J. Simpson Made in America documentary. And that actually might win an Oscar. Uh, It's a five-part documentary. It's about seven to eight hours long, and uh, it's just absolutely fascinating. It touches on uh, sports, uh, culture, racism in America. I mean, it just really hits every single uh, topic that I can imagine. And kind of uh, joining us now on the Weekly Brew Podcast to discuss this, it's going to be myself, uh, Kevin, and then Adrian Holden of TSRN Sports and what we want to do is just kind of break down this documentary and just the cultural implications uh, that it has. This is something that the entire United States is talking about right now. And uh, Kevin, I guess, I guess let's just start with you. Uh, you were the one that I can think of that was probably most excited about this documentary. What was it about, uh, I guess, your recollection of the Bronco chase back in 1994, the Rockets game going on that day? You know, almost the 20 year anniversary for this documentary coming out. What was it that just kind of drew you to this? Documentary. being the age
2: that I am I wasn't as in touch with what made OJ such a cultural touchstone uh, when I was that young I remember my dad being frustrated because the OJ chase was on the big screen we were watching the Rockets in the NBA Finals on the small screen and he was he said who gives a crap about OJ and as it turns out the entire country even years later gives a crap about OJ and obviously you have the people versus OJ Simpson coming out now we have this documentary OJ made in America which I think is vastly superior but it just speaks to uh, what an impact that whole um, that whole trial had uh, OJ his career had him as a celebrity, the murders and everything else. And I have to say, you, you've seen it once. I've seen it twice. Adrian, you've seen it. How many times now?
0: I would say that I've watched it all the way through four times and I've seen bits and pieces uh, of it. Um, you know, I watched it half a set, half a part here, half a part there. Uh, I, it was funny. Cause I found out that I, I consumed it almost in every way that you could. I mean, I, it was funny because here in Houston, the first episode was supposed to be on <laughs> on that Saturday, of course, uh-huh, right. and there was some Bayou Bowl. bowl. I, I so was Bayou there. Bowl. You yeah. had the Bayou I Bowl. I've <laughs> actually covered a Bayou Bowl myself too. So yeah, so high school football's on uh, on the Saturday night, and then of course overnight we had the tragedy that happened in Orlando. So there was wall to wall coverage of that on Sunday. So all of us here in the Houston area weren't necessarily able uh, to consume it early so we had to wait, wait 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 and then on tuesday that's how i watched it, the, the backup mm-hmm. and, and then we got into it and i ended up downloading the watch espn app watched it on part three i think on the laptop and then by that time it all come out on uh demand and i watched the rest of it uh on demand with you no know, no um real editing as far as you know blurring or, or anything like that and it just it was it was an incredible watch and uh i really feel like um a lot of people who may not have truly got an understanding of what happened and the way that it happened. Uh, They were able to at least come away with something that wasn't necessarily curated or told from a particular point of view.
2: That's what was most interesting about the documentary, I think, is because it gave a lot of screen time and a lot of credence to people I would consider to be scumbags, most notably Mark Furman, who just, I get chills up and down my spine watching him. He's actually one of Sean Hannity's buddies. He appears as a forensic... (laughs) <laughs> As a forensics expert on Fox yeah, on, on Hannity show, expert. so I mean he's, he's a hero in some people's communities. But but guys like that were given a chance to speak their voice, and I didn't feel like there was a lot of judgment um, from the from the uh, Ezra Edelman, the director, uh, and towards those guys. He kind of lets the viewers draw their own conclusions. But I, I kind of like that—that that he's not forcing the
1: storyline on you. He's making you make that educated decision. He's just telling you what happened, and you know I, I watched it, and he, like Furman looked terrible on the stand. And then pleading the fifth, I mean, I I think it was just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the guy's a racist, and I can't believe, uh, you know, I mean, just in my opinion, I think that OJ was guilty, and I think that had, uh, you know, the prosecutors had a better case, not use Furman as their essentially key witness, not put the glove on him, I think, you know, the outcome might have been maybe a little bit different, but, you know, the jury makeup at that time, I'm not sure that that would have actually implicated it. But, One of the things that I want to do real quick is before we, you know, just kind of generalize uh, the documentary, I kind of want to go through each part of it and just kind of discuss that. And uh, part one, as you recall, was essentially about O.J.'s upbringing, his football career at USC, how he got to start kind of, you know, those first few years. Uh, with the Buffalo Bills and you know after watching that I, I, I remember talking with my dad and telling him that I was watching the documentary and He was immediately asking me if they showed his days when he was playing for the San Francisco 49ers toward the end of his career My dad actually grew up in the Bay Area and I told him no They just mostly focused on his time at USC, but we hear that term big man on campus quite frequently when we hear of you know I I think of like Leonard Fournette right now I mean he's the big man on campus at LSU Uh, you know Robert Griffin was the big man on campus at Baylor Uh, you know Ward is the big man on campus right now at U of H and OJ was the big man in the Pac-10 conference at the time I mean he was the guy in the state of California he was a rock star he was God but one of the things that I was so fascinated about with him is that the way he was portrayed he was so uh, Umble. he knew that he was a star at that time, but he wanted to capitalize on his brand. And he essentially had that OJ brand that he was so adamant about. And uh, one of the things I really felt that was fascinating, uh, I, I don't know if it was part one or part two, but you know, all the racial tension that was going on in America in the 1960s, he wanted to stay out of it. He wanted to just say, you know, I'm not white. I'm not black. I'm OJ. And, I thought that was kind of fascinating that, you know, someone of his stature decided that he didn't want to get into that political stand, and then ultimately, 20, 30 years later, that was his calling card.
2: Well, there's another documentary on Netflix, <clears throat> a little easier to get your hands on, uh, called The Trials of Muhammad Ali. And there's some intersection there. Actually, uh, Lip Sight, the New York Times guy, is featured prominently as a talking head in both of them. And and watching the two together as I did this week was kind of interesting because uh, you see some clips of that Ali summit, which had, I think, Kareem, uh, Bill Russell was there. I can't remember who else, but, uh, but a number of notable. Jim Brown. Yeah, Jim Brown was there. Brown. Was there and he, he actually appears in the documentary as well. But a, a number of notable athletes. And it did seem that he entirely, OJ, entirely eschewed that whole scene in favor of, you know, building up his own brand. I guess he thought that to be associated with any sort of black movement would hurt his brand, which was interesting because it foreshadowed um, some of the, the the racial undertones of that case and, and what that case was ultimately about. So I think the the way it was set up was interesting. But I don't know what are what are your impressions from part one, Adrian?
0: You guys are 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 touching on some of the things that uh, are really central to the case uh, when you start talking about the whole thing that you, uh, Kevin you just said about. OJ deciding and making a conscious effort and a conscious decision to embrace the trappings of his early success. And not only that, but to allow his brand to be built on that success. And you know what you should do? I man. that's how it's always. I mean, that's how it's done. He was actually the archetype. He's the prototype. He's the he is how you do it, you know, but he had to forego his blackness. And not necessarily in any way that in 1968 that you would know other than hey the the in part when they talked about uh, when harry edwards was talking about the coalition of black athletes they were trying to build and you mentioned made mention of that the intersectionality between that and the, and, and the ali a situation that was going on at the same time you had people uh you had vietnam and of course civil rights in america was, was, was things had come to a head uh, and in, Cal- in in Los Angeles specifically I and mean, there were all manners of Examples uh, that were going that were given the, the the 39th and Dalton and all that other kind of stuff You love Beulah love especially those things that had happened kind of in that same time We're not even going forward into the other things that I'm sure we'll get into later, but Here you had a situation and an opportunity for the most famous well other than Muhammad Ali, probably one of the most one of the most famous, the most prominent black athlete, young black athlete of the time, and he chose to step away, to step away from them. He listen to the interviews that they that, that they give to him. And he's like, "I'm I'm not black. I'm OJ." And saying that to black people, or saying that where black people can hear you, uh, a lot of black folks like, "Okay, we got you." Mm-hmm. Okay, Harry Edwards and a lot of those other guys were asking him to be a part. And he was like, mm, "No." Nah. And you hear through hear from other civil rights activists throughout the whole documentary that they were like, okay, you've made your choice. But at the same time, understand what's available as far as information to black folks as a whole and what they're going through. I mean, they're looking up at sports. Sports was the first place in America where black folks, sports and entertainment were 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 the first places that black folks in America were able to achieve any national notoriety and were allowed to have and live in any success. That was the first place. And that was a struggle. Go to Jack Johnson from Galveston, you know? So, I mean, like we can get into that another you know, thing, but that was the first place. So black folks were looking at Muhammad Ali, looking at Jim Brown, they're looking at now OJ. And in that moment, OJ says, I'm not black, I'm OJ. And that made him so marketable mm-hmm. to white people. <laughs> so what you know what was able to happen they could build a, a build a brand around OJ that was that you were able to sell and black folks in what I would call and I don't I gotta realize I'm speaking for myself but I'm speaking from a point a, a place where I know what I know I don't want to speak for everybody but I have to speak in some generalizations uh black folks are still going to analyze him for what they see they see the pretty hey. He's America's success story. He's from the ghetto. He made his way out through football. Now he's making all this money. So what do you see? And this is what's really important, guys. Not only was it that, it was the way that they were able to build OJ the brand. He was going to school at USC. And they mentioned this in the documentary. You got all of Hollywood behind you. So all those Hollywood producers and folks that were involved in that, they were all USC alums. And you guys know Baylor alums. You guys know U of H alums. Everybody's alums. The deeper the pocket, they able to create that but they're behind the camera so they're able to create that image that was one of the things that I thought was
1: fascinating is that during the recruitment process OJ came from you know community colleges first few years and then uh, San Jose State was rumored to be potentially grabbing him because you know he's from San Francisco he's from that area and then obviously he chose USC as a school but that was really fascinating to me there were so many uh, civil rights movements going on at San Jose and San Jose State and like you had mentioned Adrian he decided to go away from that he went to the Hollywood scene and uh, one of the things that you hear in the documentary is I I I don't know if it was the hurt CEO or who it was but somebody said that uh, he had white features if you
0: want to see why folks were so angry just look at Fred Levinson's face the whole time he's talking about Mm -hmm. that first of all how could you look at OJ Simpson in his wide nose and his big lips and his afro and tell me or say out loud that he was a very nice-looking man and he didn't have he almost had white features Mm -hmm. that's not a Grecian nose right (laughs) those aren't uh, uh, uh What's her name? Amy Polar Lips, (laughs) okay? That's not what we're dealing with here, man. That's a black dude. And part of the reason why he was so marketable was because white ladies found him attractive. You wanna know how I know? Watch this, Mm. story time with Adrian. Uh (laughs) Okay, so as a young man, uh, people used to tell me, black folks too, that I bore a bit of a resemblance to O.J. Simpson. Really? Really? Should we be worried
3: right now? <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm going to stab all of you guys because I'm able to do that at 230 fat pounds with all this athleticism in the room. But, uh, no, but I mean, like, little old, like I used to wait tables. So, little old blue-haired ladies, I'm very gregarious and making them, I'm going, smiling, people doing all what I'm doing. And little old blue-hairs would be, like, in a room, there'd be five of them at a table. And I'd be like, you tell her. No, 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 you tell her. No, 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 you tell her. Somebody, what? What are you talking about? Well, you know... You kind of look a little bit like OJ Simpson. And now that was, and he was so handsome before he killed all those people, like, he still looks the same. (laughs) But these are conversations that I would have with people, Mm -hmm. okay? And this is late 90s, uh, early 2000s. And so, I mean, it's just, you can't say something like that without exposing your racism. No. Now I'm not talking about the little old blue hairs, yeah. I'm talking about Levinson. Oh yeah. Right? I'm saying stuff like that. So what? that's how far he had, that's how far, watch this. That's how far OJ had pulled himself away from the community on purpose. You know what I'm saying? Because people don't understand that there's coding behind what you're saying.
2: Subtext.
0: Yeah, a lot of subtext. So when you say something like that, you start to see how people start to you know, work around their own prejudices. You hear a whole lot of, well, he was colorless bull crap. Mm. Like, I don't trust anybody who says they don't see color. You're, you're lying to me. And a lot of people, a lot of, their, a lot of themselves, because they say, well, that's how I tell myself that I'm not a racist. I don't see color. Yes, you do. It's not about not seeing color. It's about seeing who that guy is. And say, oh, it's
2: a guy. First of all, I mean, Fred Levinson, another guy that looks really bad at the end of this documentary, but he talked about how you didn't see guys like Ali, guys like Jim Brown running through airports. You know, that was that was the O.J. brand. And they talked about the way they crafted those commercials, and they had white people, very white people. You're talking, you know, older, like you know, 67 year old woman in the first one, a bunch of Girl Scouts in the second one. Go O.J. Go! And it was an implicit permission uh, from white society that hey, this guy is okay. We're all rooting for him. <laughs> And it took that in order to make those commercials marketable to white America, I think. I think otherwise maybe O.J. wouldn't have come off You know, with people saying he had white features, which is, which is absurd, of course. So obviously he distanced himself from that movement. And um, I don't know. It was, it was a weird... For me, watching Cochran take him on as a as a civil rights case, and, and I for me, Johnny Cochran's one of the heroes of the stories. I have no ill will towards him. Uh, I I have a lot of admiration for what he did. He uh, ran with, a hell of a case. Sure, absolutely. And I don't think that he played dirty pool. I think there's a lot of implicit racism the way people talk about it, and they're so bitter about how he won that case, the arguments that he made. It still seemed to me kind of racist. Cochran and his team ran a phenomenal
1: case. They created doubt by presenting you know, Furman as a non-reliable source and then knowing that eventually Darden was going to ask for O.J. to put on the glove and telling O.J. not to take his arthritis medicine so his hands would swell, I mean that's just genius. Whether or not O.J. committed the crime or not, you have to give Cochran and his team credit for finding a way to create doubt and to, I guess, acquit. OJ Simpson. But to me, the whole thing is fascinating. And uh, you essentially look at the racial history of Los Angeles, the history of OJ Nicole. Uh, he met Nicole when she was a waitress, when he was, uh, I believe she was 18 years old at the time. Uh, but when we, one of the first moments that really stuck to my mind was in part two, and it was the Bronco chase. You know, OJ having a gun to his head. He was supposed to turn himself in at 11 a.m., obviously did not show up to the Los Angeles uh, police department, the Los Angeles courthouse. And Uh, He went on that white Bronco chase. That's something that we all recall. Like you, Kevin, I was wanting to watch the Rockets game, and that was preempted by OJ and the white Bronco, and so that was an image that I always will have in my mind on that day, uh, June 17th, 1994, and there was just so much stuff that happened that day and for I don't know, just to see that and just to see the newscasters just following him from the helicopter, to see the crowds of people supporting him, and then ultimately the standoff at the house where they finally convinced him to come out of the white bronco. That was just kind of fascinating just leading up to, I guess, the pre-trial for when he was charged for the uh, the murder of Ron Goldman and Nicole.
2: And maybe the most fascinating moment in the whole documentary or one of them that first gave me some real insight into O.J.'s character or lack thereof was the uh, the SWAT guy. Pete, Pete is his name, I think. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. But he was talking about how he convinced OJ to come out. He said, first, he appealed to his love for his kids. He said, You don't want to put your kids through this. He said, He immediately changed the subject, had no interest. He goes, Okay, I got to appeal to this guy's self interest, his ego. And he started saying, OJ, you got to show people you're strong like they believe you're strong. You got to show them that you're the man you used to be. And that was how he convinced OJ to get on board, to put down the gun, to Put his hands out of the car show them he wasn't going to shoot anybody and come into the house and i think that you know there's some i'm not sure if they say the word sociopath in the documentary but i think there's a lot of evidence and a lot of talking heads that point to the fact that this guy had no um no spark no soul no conscience whatever we kind of point to as being one of the defining characteristics of human nature that some sort of guilt he's entirely free from it and if you view his life in that lens I think it's uh, it's a really interesting caricature, and it really provides a lot of insight into what why he did what he did. Because to me, there's two OJs. There's the OJ who's really generous. You know, he brings the whole Buffalo Bills offense, and when he's uh, after the 2,000 yard game or whatever, he, he introduces them one by one. And then there's also the very selfish, violent OJ. It's, just, it's a very complex portrait. Except maybe it kind of makes sense if he is all about himself and has no conscience. Well, he was uh, the ultimate silly putty. You know, he wasn't. There was no internal character. He was whoever people thought he needed to be. That's why he made those magnanimous gestures. That's why he was an actor. Yes, exactly right. Not a very good one. But interestingly, not very good on film. Not able to convey the nuances of, of emotion and character in front of a camera. But it did translate in real life because he was never better than he was in front of the camera in the courtroom. You know, even Marshall Clark talked about it. He was always very aware of where that camera was. And they talked about the distinction between the way he was in front of black people, the way he was in front of white people, and how he was kind of always on in quote-unquote white society and how he sort of dropped that when he wasn't. And so I just think that uh, that's the way you have to look at O.J. as a guy who has no guiding moral compass, uh, a guy who sort of, you know, they talk about him being lost, and in a sense he was.
1: Yeah, and in, in parts three and four, we kind of get into the trial phase. One of the key things I want to bring up real quick is uh, for those that, you know, haven't watched the documentary, uh, there was a lot of racial tensions in Los Angeles at that time in the early 1990s, uh, primarily because of the Rodney King beatings in March 3rd, 1991, in which, uh, if you haven't seen the footage, uh, LAPD essentially beats the living hell out of Rodney King, and ultimately the uh, police officers were found not guilty during, uh, during any sort of uh, trial, and that essentially... from what Ezra Eldman tells you is that that is one of the reasons why the jury found OJ Simpson ultimately not guilty is it was essentially a a retribution, a payback. And actually some jurors said that it was. And so I I just think the tension going on at the time, it wasn't about the murder or whether OJ committed it. It was clearly highlighting the, I guess, the peak issue of racial tensions in Los Angeles.
2: So one uh, of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you specifically about OJ, not only have you seen it a number of times, are <laughs> passionate about it, enjoy it and so forth, but we've actually had uh, before a discussion about the term, the race card, which features prominently in this documentary. Obviously Bob Shapiro, after the case, had concluded when on television and said, not only did we play the race card, we dealt it from the bottom of the deck. And so I know you have some questions about the legitimacy or not questions. You have some ideas about the legitimacy of that term at all. And it also kind of rubs me the wrong way. I'm curious when you hear it used in that context, what are your thoughts? It's basically used in a pejorative fashion to diminish
0: um, true instances of racism. Like, oh, no, you're using a race card. Like, and then this, let me, I'm also going to give, because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word that creates a picture. Okay. you it, they said, we've dumped it from the bottom of the deck. So you're looking, at, you're looking at cards. Okay. So here I am, black guy, just walking around. Regular black dude, not even talking about OJ specifically. But here I am, black guy. And I got this. Fictional race card when the hell do I pull it out what do I use it for what will it get me I can think of diabetes uh, police brutality uh, higher incarceration rates uh, more stringent drug penalties uh, I can think of a whole lot of things that this comes with but I can't think of a situation where I can pull out a card So like if I'm having an argument with you and I'm arguing something along racial lines, it's not because I'm using a card to win an argument. I'm just talking about life. So people say stuff like race card to shut down true arguments. Now, are there people, minorities, uh, poor whites, uh, people who are not in places of any kind of privilege that choose to use their circumstances to keep them in places where they are? Absolutely there are. But what that doesn't erase is centuries of systems. Because that's what racism is. It's a system. It's supported by laws. Again, if you don't have any real understanding of that, it's easy for you to be like, yeah, a race card. Yeah, that's a card. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it it's, it's infuriating to a point, but... I have to choose to understand that there are people that just haven't been forced to think about things a certain way.
1: I don't know. When I look back at history, I mean, I'm a a history, political science, international relations major. I mean, I took, uh, you know, several classes in college that studied uh, racial history in America. And to me, it was kind of fascinating. You just, you, you learn about the struggles and you kind of think, okay, you know, everything that Martin Luther King did in the 1960s, like you would think that people would change. And that's the thing. I don't know that Americans have actually changed and I, I and I will say that I think we are just as bad now as we were in the 1960s if not worse and one of the reasons why I say that we might be worse is because of social media. I feel that in the 90s and the early 2000s people might have been racist but you know they just kind of hit it, you know, it was a little behind. But now with social media, whether it's just little comments that somebody makes on Facebook, whether it's little comments that somebody sends out in a tweet, racism is still a huge problem. In America right now, we see that with uh, you know people that don't like Barack Obama, they make it a racial issue. Tell them you know go back to Kenya. Like it's 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 insane how much racism still exists in our society
2: well and what you talk about systems and it being systematic uh, what really was discouraging for me was the way that even to this day the police have closed ranks you talk about the guys that said I never saw racism in 30 years in the LAPD that's ridiculous or you talk about Mark Furman or, or Daryl Gates you know the uh, the chief of the LAPD talking about the reason that Rodney King happened was because they outlawed the choke that was Furman that's a quote from Furman in the
0: documentary.
2: So th- that sort of mentality – again, Furman, you know, not in prison, not uh, – they haven't totally disavowed him. He still appears as an expert, you know, on, on Fox News. So, no, I think that we are not as far as, as people would like to believe that we are in terms of, uh, of solving these systematic issues.
0: We talked about what happened at 39th and Dalton. Mm-hmm. We talked about uh, Rodney King. We didn't even bring up Latasha Harlins, right. which wasn't a situation where the cops did something. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a situation where a white person did something. It was a situation where a young black girl was victimized, shot in the back of the head for no reason, on tape, and then the murderer was given 400 hours of community service. There's a lot of things that went into it, but when you talk about the racial component of it, yeah, it's easy, it's easy. For, for folks to believe that the cops was trying to bring O.J. down, because a lot of these cops had already been out to O.J.'s walls before.
2: It's, all, for me, almost beside the point. I think that even if O.J. Yeah. is, in a sense, if he did kill her, if he is guilty of the crime, you can still feel a sense of legitimate pride and joy in the outcome of that trial because it was so far removed from what anyone expected yeah. to happen. Uh, and it was in a sense of victory, even though it was also a miscarriage of justice, probably. I think we can almost certainly say it was still something to celebrate. And I, I feel it. You know, when it's the, the horses, when they cheer after the verdict is issued and the horses rear back, it's a really powerful image, I think. And I feel that. It's just it's, it's just it's a fascinating trial
0: altogether. But the, the racial aspect of it uh, comes in uh, with, with 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 defense. But it's it man. I really, I dug this documentary a lot. It really brings up so much, so many different things that you could talk about, but you can't, you can't discuss it in a vacuum. And that's why I appreciated the way that Edelman put it together. Because if you try to talk about it just in, 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 the, in the, in the, within the construct of that just a trial, then you feel one way about it. You to say miscarriage of justice. Okay, it wasn't necessarily a miscarriage of justice. It was a bad, it was a bad job by the prosecution.
1: Yeah, I think that's the 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 big thing that I that I definitely came to, and that was the having Furman on the stand and then Darden with a glove. I think those were two huge situations that caused the prosecution to essentially lose that case, but one of the things that we haven't talked about is part five of the documentary, and part five of the documentary is just essentially O.J., uh, you know, kind of what happens with him after the trial, and to me, it's fascinating that I think he got away with murder, and, you know, typically when you get off the hook with something, you would assume that, you know, you would maybe say, okay, I'm gonna play it cool, you know, I'm not going to try to get myself in those situations, but he completely changed his life around in the opposite direction. I mean, he went in, you know, drug use, significant hard drug use, uh, you know, prostitutes, I, I mean, just everything. They, they show his lifestyle down in Miami. And it's its just, I don't know, it's, it's crazy for me to see. And then, of course, they, you know, close the documentary out in part five with him in Las Vegas uh, at a pool party at the Palms, you know, going and meeting, you know, 18 to 22 year old women, you know, saying, oh, hey, OJ, can I get a picture? Can I get an autograph? That sort of thing. And then in, what was it, 2007, when he stole his, uh, I guess, memorabilia back at gunpoint. And to me, it was just, one, I don't, I, I get, you know, that he wanted his memorabilia back. I get that, but. How dumb can you be?
2: Well, and here's here's one thing that never came up, and I was kind of surprised it wasn't addressed given what we've been talking about in the sports world recently, which was like, how many hits did OJ take over his career? How hard were those hits? How damaged might his actual physical brain be? And might that have something to do with his behavior? Because you talk about people many times referenced how he would go into a rage. Something would come over his eyes, and it would be like he wasn't there. Furman told him to put the bat down, put the bat down, got his baton out, and then something came back over him. He said, oh, I'm sorry, I put the bat down. So I wonder... If when all is said and done with O.J., we're going to you know see slides of his brain, they're going to be like, wow, this is pretty severe CTE, kind of like we've seen with some other uh, notable athletes who have committed suicide or who have been violent, who have had issues like that. I, I wonder if that's going to play a role in this ultimately and might have something to do with that um, degeneracy, I guess you might say, after the not guilty verdict, you know, the the issues in Vegas, Miami.
1: Yeah, it was kind of interesting. We've we discussed uh, the movie Concussion. We've discussed uh, against football several times on this podcast. But uh, Dr. Bennett Malu actually, in, uh, in an article in ESPN in uh, this past January, January said quote that O.J. Simpson is more likely than not to suffer from CTE he also said that I would bet my medical license on it mm-hmm. so uh, I yeah I think CTE could definitely be a thing for O.J. Simpson and you know maybe that was what caused him to have that rage you know the domestic violence spring with Nicole and ultimately um, you know the the issues with the trial and you know, going back and trying to steal his memorabilia I don't think the guy's all right in the head because if you look at O.J. Simpson And that first part of the documentary, he's a completely guy from part five, a completely different guy from part five. And, you know, life, fame, money, it changes your your perspective on life. But I also do think you bring up a valid point. Was
0: CTE a reasonable factor behind the fall of OJ Simpson? It's probable that that's a... That he that he does have uh, some of that going on, and if he does, I mean that might. I mean, I put it this way: if he was going through the trial again now, that would probably be the def- That'd probably be part of the defense, mm-hmm. you know. It probably the civil trial, even if you say, say they ran the same exact cases they ran before. Johnny Cochran still out there in the same case. When he got to the civil trial, it'd be all about CTE.
2: So, what is the and kind of and kind of wrapping this up? What is the impact? of the OJ documentary? Does it, does it help us as a society? Has it moved us forward? Does it reveal problems? We have? What, what is the ultimate fallout? And I gotta say that, um, I'm discouraged. I don't, I, there's not, it's not uplifting. I've read that as a quote somewhere. Somebody wrote in a review of it. It's not an uplifting documentary at all. It doesn't hold really a sense of hope for me about society and the way that we comport ourselves in regards to our relationships with one another. It's just kind of, um, I think it's a revelatory look at who we are and it's not positive.
0: What used to be just tabloidy type stuff. I mean, like, well, think about it, with uh, sports, with well, just with sports. Okay, I'm 38. You said you were 29. You're, 28. you're. 28. So y'all are all y'all are all 28. So you go 10 years. I'm just a little bit older, you guys. Like the only way that we could get, like, if you didn't have cable and you weren't watching ESPN all the time, you got your information on your sports on your sports guys on inside stuff. Mm. That's all you got. You got your 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 news about your 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 movie people and stuff from Entertainment Tonight. That's what you got. That's all you had. Now, it's it's after you twenty four seven, and it's created a whole space. OJ did all that. It's 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 a really fascinating tale, and uh, there's just so much into it. And you can really kind of go into it and pull out of it what you will. You can go into it and pull out of it what you will. But you have to acknowledge that without. Um, you no, know, without the racial component and without 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 um, the way that the, you know, the United States, of the world worked, California worked at the time, the way it still works today, we wouldn't have this case turn out the way that it did. At the end of the day, I think we had a fascinating discussion about O.J. made
1: in America. And again, if you have not seen the documentary, it's a five-part documentary. ESPN is actually trying to get this an Oscar nomination. It'll be, it'll, it'll yeah. It, it It appears it should. yeah, I, I agree. it should. it's a, it's it's a very long documentary, but it's well worth your time. It's seven hours and forty four minutes, and uh, it doesn't feel like seven hours and forty four minutes. And again, it's it was released May twentieth uh, here in Houston. We actually could not watch the <laughs> debut as uh, high school football was on. But the film was directed by Ezra Edelman. and uh, it has great uh, interviews with uh, Carl Douglas, Mike Gilbert, Joe Bell, oh. Jeffrey Tubin, Ron Shipp. Uh, Zoe Tur uh, Marsha Clark the lead prosecutor Carrie Bess uh, Robin Greer who was a friend of Nicole uh, and then uh, Mike Albanese who was a former LAPD SWAT so it has so many great interviews and just credit to you Edelman and his crew at ESPN 30 for 30 I think it's probably one of the best 30 for 30 documentaries out there so if you haven't seen it yet I highly recommend it Adrian we definitely appreciate you uh, joining us today in the We Desert Studios to uh, you know discuss this and just the, the cultural implications that it has Thanks for having me.
0: How do uh, people find you, Adrian? If looking for you on Twitter? No, oh, no, no, don't come looking for me. Well, don't right. come looking for you. <laughs> uh, no, you can find me on Twitter at the uh, Greatest of All Part Time. Um, oh, guys, really, thank you for for having me on. I really, I really appreciate
1: it, Kevin Adrian. I, I definitely uh, appreciate the conversation that we had, and you know, just discuss the larger cultural implications. But again, if you haven't seen it already, check out the ESPN Thirty for Thirty documentary, OJ Made in America
0: closing time.
1: Again, this has been episode 50 of the Weekly Brew Podcast, and thanks to Adrian Holden for coming on and, uh, I guess, breaking down the OJ documentary with us. I thought that was a fascinating conversation. Uh, He definitely had some strong opinions and some strong takes, but I thought he brought a uh, unique perspective to the show. Also, uh, talking NBA free agency was a lot of fun. One of the names that we didn't mention at the top of the show was Dwight Howard, who uh, signed with the Atlanta Hawks, so congratulations to him for uh, finding a team that is uh, actually willing to accept a crybaby. So uh, we salute Salute to you, Dwight Howard, for getting your contract. But uh, uh, one of the things that we didn't mention at the top of the show was actually our sponsor, uh, Wee Desserts.
2: Wee Desserts at 3411 Kirby. We've spoken a lot about them. Uh, And, of course, I'm sure many of you guys have gone by. We've heard from them about guys that have dropped in and taken advantage of the 10% discount you get for being a listener of the podcast. But there's something exciting going on at Wee this week. Have you guys heard? Is it a 4th of July special? It is not a 4th of July special. It is a uh, chocolate special. How, how, How big of fans of chocolate are we here?
3: I don't really like chocolate.
2: Shut up. (laughs) <laughs> strong we're doing we're doing a plug and you, this is like improv you got a yes and I like a white chocolate uh, it's Does not white have... chocolate no stop okay you're okay. terrible <laughs> Austin Hi, Austin how do you feel about chocolate buddy I can't stop laughing right now. I'm sorry. Okay, so we all love chocolate here. It's very clear. Uh, they are teaming up at Wee Desserts with Ch- Cosmic Creatures, the name of the company. And they uh, are a vegan, soy-free, bean-to-bar part- partnership. Uh, basically creating really uh, responsible, delicious chocolate, and they're using it in their hot chocolate now. So if you've gone by We before, they have uh, a proprietary, delicious hot chocolate that you will love and that now is... Uh, is powered by i guess you would say cosmic creature chocolate so they're very excited about that partnership we're very excited about them having that partnership and i'm gonna go by there as soon as we stop recording and get uh some of my 10 percent off we desserts items
1: cosmic creature is that kind of inspired by the new independence day movie
2: uh i don't think that it would be is that in any way tied to it
1: I don't know. Cosmic Creature to me sounds like alien foreign. I Maybe mean, I'm
2: wrong. I, it sounds more like an acid trip than than that new movie but but I I'm not sure that either. I recommend everyone
3: to go watch the movie. Lamb looks great.
2: I so, recommend going yeah. to watch it on acid but I, they do not put acid in the chocolate. That is a guarantee. That is that is from uh, We Desserts. They guarantee that they will not put acid into your desserts.
1: That's good to know. So go buy We Desserts for non-acid uh, desserts and that's 3411. Just tell them that the guys and the Finesse Queen at the Weekly Brew podcast since you buy you get 10% off. But uh, Dolores let's jump real quick and independence say you saw the film is it going to win the best picture for the oscars
3: i don't think it will win the best picture for the oscars but it was a really good film like i said i was just i think i was just checking it out lamb the whole time yeah i disagree
2: i think that you're the standards by which you're judging it are not the standards by which most people judge movies uh it looked terrible i'm not going to see it i'm boycotting it it looks horrible
1: That's a very unpatriotic take. I mean, it's Independence Day. Come on. I mean, do we need Will Smith in it for you to go see it?
2: Uh, Will Smith would do nothing for me, as he does nothing for me in general. Uh, It's a tired retread. It's a terrible movie. All the reviews have been horrible. Reviews of people I trust. It looks awful. I will not waste my time
3: Kevin's like anti-America everything. I think
1: so. I think so. But I will tell you, it's kind of like Sharknado, for example. If you go into it knowing that it's going to be a terrible film, you can actually enjoy it. Now, I, I do want to pose this question for you. Dolores is obviously thinks that Liam is, you know, the sexiest man alive. Is and, Liam Hensworth? the protagonist? Yes. yes. Uh, a few weeks ago on the podcast, yeah. Kevin, <laughs> a few weeks ago on the podcast, Kevin, you told us that you thought JJ Watt was the sexiest person alive. Mm-hmm. If JJ J. Watt was in this film, would you go see
2: absolutely, it? Absolutely. I would see it. Is he taking his shirt off? A I'm shirt. absolutely going to see it two, maybe three times. I will own it on Blu ray.
1: There you have it, folks. If J.J. Watt is in a film, Kevin will pay top dollar to go see that. But, uh, again, this has been episode 50 of the Weekly Brew Podcast, and we had a great time discussing NBA Free Agency and the O.J. Made in America documentary. And if you haven't seen it, highly recommend checking it out uh, this week. It's Fourth of July weekend, so you're hearing this probably on the Fourth of July. So uh, if you don't want to be out at the pool or supporting patriotic things – you know, maybe watch a non-uplifting seven-hour documentary on OJ Simpson. Uh, definitely recommend checking that out. But I also recommend that you check us out on our social media pages to search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also find all of our work on WeeklyBrewcast.com. We post the content there each Monday, and it's pushed to your inbox once we click live. So I highly recommend doing that. And if you want to also follow us on Twitter, you can check out Kevin at K Michael Cook. You can check out Dolores at 1Dolores Lozano, and you can check out me at A astatin on Twitter. So uh, again, thanks to all of our listeners and all of our feedback that we've had this week. And that means that it's time for Kevin's favorite part of the show.
2: Yeah, we got some reviews. So we actually have, this is a first for us, we got a review from Another Country, which I had to search through on the iTunes store Other Countries and found that we had an old review from uh, Thailand. And the name is, I take a look at it here. Can you even begin to tell me how you pronounce that? It's not even in... like. No, I, I couldn't do that. The, the, the letters, the script is different than what I read. It looks like alien hieroglyphics. In honor
1: of... Independence, Independence
2: day. Day, exactly. So this is an alien who's riding us from Thailand. It says, enjoy listening to you guys. Uh, I'm listening all the way from Bangkok, Thailand. Keep up the good work. I think USA did great at Copa America. What do you guys think? The answer is that I didn't think at all about soccer over the past month.
1: I mean, yeah, they won the games they were supposed to, but they got blown out by the teams they were expected to lose to. They got blown out
2: in soccer? Yeah. What does that mean, like a 2-0 game?
1: They did get blown out 4 to nothing by Argentina, and then against Colombia, they just looked terrible in that opening match game. You know, granted, they did beat the teams they were supposed to. the U.S. just isn't a yet. They are ranked number 31 in the world, which is just not good enough to compete at that uh, top top level in international soccer.
2: I will say that that is uh, drastically better than our rankings in science, math, reading, and most of their academic subjects. So by that metric, soccer's doing pretty well.
1: I guess, I guess that's fair. We are not a country that focuses on STEM education. We are a country that focuses on football and not the one that you actually play on a pitch.
2: Boo America. You heard it first. That's we right. hate America.
1: I, I wouldn't go that far, but in terms of actual... <laughs> But in terms of actual soccer right now, we have the Euro Cup going on. And there's some pretty fascinating stories on the Euro Cup. I mean, Iceland is in the quarterfinals right now. They play France on Sunday. Okay, and Kevin Germany beat Italy. Germany beat Italy. Uh, Wales, who hasn't been in a major tournament since the 1950s, is going to the semifinals. So if you like soccer, I definitely
2: recommend. And if you like
3: drinking, yeah. you, you like soccer. Yeah.
1: So check out the Euro <laughs> Cup. But in terms of the United States and Copa America, eh.
2: Yeah, so those are our thoughts. Thanks to um, Alien Language from Bangkok, Thailand. We appreciate you listening. And we had a review from uh, the states, I I assume from one of the 48 contiguous states. There's no indication to me that this is from Alaska or Hawaii, so I would think that it's a mainlander. Uh, It's from Lestar1, can't stop listening that's what I like to hear is the title of the review. can't stop, can't stop won't stop we appreciate can't that last time stop,
3: won't stop. Something is that can't a song something. yeah it is. I
2: didn't know what it was from I thought it was just the thing people said
3: get down baby
2: get, get down baby down. Yeah, I can, they can't see your hand <laughs> motions but she's really jamming over here um, this podcast keeps me up to date on all things and let me not forget to say that Kevin is the bombcom which no one has ever oh, said about me. Are you paying
3: me. for these reviews? I swear to God, I am not.
1: I, I think you might be. I'm not paying for it. I think so. Because I, I think that's the first time Kevin has ever been referred to as the bomb.com, which suggests that he's paying for, I don't know, somebody that's stuck in the nineties. Yeah. It's,
2: <laughs> I I paid for someone from the nineties to give us a review. Um, I don't know what that means, but I appreciate it. I think it sounds good, right? I don't know, Bomb.com. I use thebomb.com, bomb.com though. Probably on some sort of like no fly list or something, but um but I appreciate the feedback.
3: You should be after this podcast. <laughs> Boo America. Hashtag anti-America.
1: <laughs> so we've learned that uh, Kevin, again, has a crush on J.J. Watt. He hates America. He hates baseball. Uh, he hates Independence Day. J.J. Watt is into movies now, isn't he? He's he's into make actresses. Of-
2: Whoa. No, he's- Literally and figuratively.
1: No, he's he's into, uh, have you heard about those? He's dating Brian Cushing's.
3: Is
2: this oh right? i thought you were gonna say brian cushing it would be the first intra-squad homosexual relationship i was gonna applaud for it because i'm a democrat but um no that's i mean that's don't make you're me really jealous. jealous i don't Let's want do to it. hear about his other relationships in my mind he is single hot jj watt well he's he's
1: taken sorry kevin
2: it won't last never gonna last
1: okay all right well if jj watt jj watt if you're listening right now too hot to be tied down jj <laughs> <laughs> watt if you are listening uh Give Kevin a
2: call. Anyway, thank you to the reviewers on iTunes who left us reviews this week. That helps us. Uh, if you have not yet left us a review, I could not be more disappointed in you as a listener. So uh, do that. Go to our Facebook. A bunch of people like us on Facebook this week. I feel really popular. Um, it's sort of, I feel virile and powerful, and I always appreciate that sort of a boost. So Facebook, iTunes, those are the big things we're plugging this week. And thank you to all the listeners who participate.
1: Absolutely. And again, this has been episode 50 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Thanks to Adrian Holden for joining us and talking OJ Simpson. Also, thanks to uh, both Kevin and Dolores for offering their thoughts and NBA free agency, but as always, it's been another great episode, and we look forward to having Jeremy Paxton back next week and kind of hearing about his European escapades. For my co-hosts, Kevin Cook and Dolores Asano, my name is Austin Statton. We'll see you next week.
2: Guys, always remember this week, no matter who you are, where you go, or what you do, always brew responsibly. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew.